0: Thomas and Aaron, welcome to Island Voices. Please hit the red subscribe button to the right of your screen and welcome aboard. Folks, today's guest made his debut in professional baseball for the New York Yankees in 1990. He has said, my defining moment came on October 23rd, 1996 in front of 52,000 fans while millions more watched on TV around the world. But then he goes on to explain, I had become tricked into thinking that somehow, because so many wonderful things had happened to me in such a short time, that my fortune would continue. Little did I know that my life and struggles were just beginning. The results would not always garner ticker tape. This is a very interesting man, and one who possesses remarkable courage and inner strength. And now, this podcast is about the incredible history of this incredible place that we now call New York. And while this guest's time in New York took place at the tail end of the 20th century, I am quite certain (laughs) that he would have fit in just as well here in the 17th, 18th, or 19th century, maybe even better. Because what I've come to learn about him, uh, I would say that his grit and tenacity would have been greatly admired by the likes of Walloon Pierre Menouy and by Huguenot Jean de la Montaigne, or by my own uncle, Honest John Kelly, who was tasked with putting together the pieces of Tammany Hall in the wake of the Boss Tweed era. All of these men, impactful founders who helped to shape this place into what it is today. One veteran teammate said of this guest, sometimes Jimmy told people what they didn't want to hear. He was straight up. And of himself, he has said quite plainly, I don't like fake people. No wonder I like this guy. And I couldn't be happier to welcome him to the podcast because in spite of having to fight for every at-bat he ever took in the majors over his 11-year career, he is a relentless doer. In sports terms, we call him clutch. And he will always have a special place in the hearts of Yankee fans for his postseason heroics. As Bob Costas famously announced, you could send this guy to a resort during the spring and summer, as long as he comes back in October. <laughs> now, that is one hell of a legacy, especially in a place like New York. Damas and Aaron, mesdames et messieurs, damas y caballeros, ladies and gentlemen, I am infinitely honored to introduce you to a man who has fought for everything he has, whose faith in God and family helped shape and guide him through the peaks and valleys of a career in Major League Baseball a career that had him contribute pivotal home runs in not one, but two different World Series victories for the greatest baseball team of all time, our very own New York Yankees. And all that aside, he is a wonderful father and a great example to parents everywhere. This is Mr. Jim Lairitz. Welcome, in here. Hey, how are we doing? Good, Jim. How are you?
1: Oh, thank you for that introduction. Very nice. Thank You're you. You're welcome.
0: You're very welcome. I enjoyed uh, getting to know about you and your career. Um, you you have, a lot of people think that pro athletes have it made and everything is glory and glamor and money and glitz. Um, you had a little bit of a different career, a journey, didn't you?
1: Yeah. Yeah, my journey was quite different. I mean, you know, the odds of me, even seeing a day in the big leagues from never being drafted were millions to one. I mean, there, there was no reason why, even to just to see the big leagues much less last 11 years, um, you know, cause I was, I was never drafted. I was, I was overlooked, uh, I broke my leg out of high school two days before the draft, so they passed on me. And then I never really got another opportunity until I was playing in a collegiate league in Kansas And the Yankees saw me playing and they were there actually to watch another player named Dave Hollins who was playing for another team. And uh, I had a great series and they said, you know what, you want to sign? And I said, absolutely. And I ended up signing with the New York Yankees and uh, it uh, turned out pretty good.
0: Is it fair to say, would you consider yourself an overachiever?
1: Oh, yeah, I think um, You know, I was raised with a father who, if anybody knows sports, a cross between Woody Hayes and Bobby Knight. (laughs) Yeah, he could push you a little bit. Yes, you couldn't be timid. You couldn't be timid. Uh, You know, growing up with my father really prepared me for working for George Steinbrenner. You know, he, he was very hard on me. He, uh, if I if I scored 20 points in a basketball game, why didn't you score 30? If I went two for four, why didn't you go three for four? As a matter of fact, one of the greatest stories I ever tell is the day I got called up to the big leagues. My first time ever in Yankee Stadium, after I, I came up in Baltimore, and then we went back home to New York. I walked into Yankee Stadium, I saw the monuments, I saw everything. I walk into the locker room, my locker is next to Don Mattingly. And I'm, I'm just taking all this in on my first day at Yankee Stadium. And to top it off, we're playing the Red Sox.
0: <laughs> that night.
1: So I, <laughs> I called <can't> <laughs> call my dad on the phone and I said, hey dad, listen, I made it. He said, what are you talking about? I, I explained to him what I just experienced. He goes, Jimmy, that's awesome. Very, very good. But tell me what you're going to do to stay there.
0: Mm.
1: That was my father's things. Okay. You reached one goal. What's your next? Yeah. Okay. Don't ever be satisfied until you have what you want. And my father knew that I wanted to be like my Cincinnati Reds that I grew up in the 70s with. I wanted to win a World Series. I wanted to be part of that. And just getting to the big leagues wasn't my goal. And I always had that kind of drive pushed from my father. And then of course, once I got with the Yankees, Mr. Steinbrenner was the next one to push those buttons.
0: You, you, you threw out some big names in that story, Jim. Uh, Don Mattingly, uh, George Steinbrenner, um, your dad. I, I know the impact he had on you because I, re- I read your book and I, I think your relationship with him is beautiful. And I am a father and I understand a lot of those sentiments now. T- talk to me about some of those names. You have a, you had a special relationship with George Steinbrenner, didn't you?
1: Yeah, George and I first met. I was I was my second year in the minor leagues. We used to work out at the University of Florida in Gainesville, and Mr. Steinbrenner was a big supporter uh, of Gainesville, of University of Florida. And we were at a basketball game one night. Myself, Scott Lucaner, and Chris Lombardosi, two other minor league guys, and they show on the on the tron. Tr- tr- Mr. Steinbrenner's at the game. And now I have my Yankee top on, my Yankee necklace, and you know, I'm I'm a minor leaguer, you know, for the Yankees. And I said to Scott Luseder and Chris Lombardosi, hey, let's go down and meet Mr. Steinbrenner. And they're like, dude, you don't do that. You don't talk to George Steinbrenner. And I'm like, what are you talking about? So I said, screw that. I'm going down there. So I went down and his security guard Eddie was sitting at the, the uh the front of the row. And I walked up to him and I said, sir, can I, can I say hello to Mr. Steinbrenner? And he saw my jacket and my necklace. He goes, oh, are you a Yankee fan? I said, no, I'm one of the minor leaguers. He said, oh yeah, go ahead. So I, there was four empty seats, then Mr. Steinbrenner. I went and I sat down next to Mr. Steinbrenner and he kind of looked at me and I went to shake his hand and I said, how you doing Mr. Steinbrenner? My name is Jim Layritz." I said, um, it's a pleasure to meet you. And he looked at my jacket again. He just like the security guy goes, oh, you're a Yankee fan? I said, no, sir, you signed my paycheck. He's like, what? And I said, I'm one of your minor leaguers. I said, you know, a couple guys are here. They were afraid to come down and say hello. I wanted to meet you. So here I am, you know, a pleasure to meet you. He stopped, he took out a piece of paper and a pen. And he said, by the way, what's your name again? And I said, Jim Laird, and he wrote my name down. Hmm. That was the first time I ever met Mr. Steinbrenner. In 1990, I got called up. Like I mentioned, my first time going in this team, we're playing the Red Sox. I get to pinch hit against Roger Clemens in the eighth inning, and I get a base hit. And I come into the locker room afterwards, and on my chair. Now you got to remember, 1990, Mr. Steinbrenner was suspended; he wasn't even with the team. Yeah. Yeah. On my chair was a bottle of champagne and a note from George Steinbrenner that said, "Congratulations, kid. You said you'd be here." He remembered, he remembered and somehow contacted somebody to put that on my chair to let me know that, hey,
0: I'm I'm watching you. It's amazing, you know, because I'm a New Yorker and I, I've I remember when I first heard Steinbrenner's name and you know it's easy. It was easy to if you listen to some of the press to dislike Steinbrenner or think he was a jerk or think he was oppressive or have any kind of negative thoughts about him. And again, if you're not in the game, if you're not in the major leagues, you don't know. Him. I mean, you, all you know is what you see on TV. That was the image that was, you know, illustrated of Steinbrenner when I was growing up. Tell me more about that, because the more I read and understand and learn about who he was and hear from people like you, I, I think he was, he sounds like he was a phenomenal man. Yeah. You know, listen, Mr. Steinbrenner was a
1: tough boss. For, for somebody that worked in the organization. As a player, we loved him because he said to us, what do you need? Okay, I'll go get that, but guess what? If I get it and I pay for it, you better win, you better perform. And you, there's nothing wrong, you know, and he, and he always said that. And that was the one thing as a player you appreciated. Now, would I have wanted to work in his front office? Probably not, he, he might be a little bit scary as a boss uh, if, if I wasn't a player. But the one great thing that I loved about him was, Well, actually there was two things. One was his charity and his giving side that he never let anybody know. Mr. Steinbrenner would read an article in the paper of somebody that got shot in the line of duty and their family was left without a father or a mother or whatever, you know, left without a parent. And he would call up and say, listen, I'm gonna give this family this much money for five years, every year for five years. But if one person finds out about it, it's done. I'm giving it, and, and he had a saying from the charity side that if you do something for somebody and more than one person has to know about it, then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Wow. That's and amazing. That, that, and that part was amazing. And what happened was all of these people kept quiet until he passed away. And once he passed away, then people told these stories about all of this philanthropic stuff that he did in New York, that he did in Tampa and just what a great, great man he was. And um, that was number one. Number two that I learned from George Steinbrenner was when I wasn't in the lineup and he was down there on the ba- on, during batting practice walking on the field and I wasn't in the lineup, he'd come up to me and said, hey, Leritz, you in the lineup? I said, no, Mr. Steinbrenner, not today. He goes, skip batting practice, go down there to right field and start signing autographs for your fans. They're the ones that pay your bill. Wow. And he would have us go down and sign autographs. And that's just the kind of guy that he really was. And, and, but as a boss, he wanted that General Patton, you know, persona. And that's the one thing that we always talk about being a celebrity, being an athlete. We're in the public a lot. Mr. Steinbrenner was in the public a lot. The persona that the media gave him was not the character of George Steinbrenner. And that's the one thing people I think tend to forget sometimes is we're judged out of persona because of what the media talks about us, what people see on TV, not for what people don't see behind closed doors. And that's the difference again, in Mr. Steinbetter.
0: I think it's an example of being a father has a certain set of requirements. Being a boss has another set of requirements and being a friend has an entirely different set of requirements, but being a human yet another set of requirements. And he applied each as, 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 as it was applicable. And and one of of my
1: greatest, one of my greatest stories again, of his loyalty is in 1996, I hit the home run. um, The season ends and my agents are talking to George about my next contract. And I have one more year left on my contract and they're talking to him. And they said, if Jimmy doesn't play every day, can we pursue a trade? And George said, absolutely. What he's done for us, I'll give him that opportunity. Because he contacted Tory and he contacted Cashman, and, or not Cashman, uh, Bob Watson, and said, is Jimmy going to play every day next year? And they said, probably not. He'll probably be in the same role that he was in 96. So George called my agents and said, go ahead, try to pursue something. So I was living in Tampa at the time, working out in the minor league fields. And all of a sudden, I get caught off the field. And into the locker room and I go in, I get the phone. It's my agents. Hey, we just worked a trade. You're going to Anaheim. You got a three-year contract and you're going to be the everyday catcher in Anaheim. And I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Yeah. Well, I packed up my bag and I walked into Mr. Steinbrenner's office to thank him. And I said, Mr. Steinbrenner, I just got off the phone with my agents, who he was best friends with, Tom Rich and Adam Katz. And I said, hey, thank you for you know, giving me this opportunity to go play every day somewhere. And he says, well, what are you doing with your bag? I said, well, I'm not a Yankee anymore. I can't work out here. He said, son, go unpack your bag. You will always be a Yankee. There's only two players that I will let ever come back that are no longer with the team, and that's you and Wade Boggs, and you guys can work out here as long as you want.
0: Amazing. That was one of my favorite parts of the book when you mentioned that. I thought that was really telling. Really telling. You have a lot of good stories. Um, You you, you told me actually, when we first talked before the interview, something, it was a little surprising to me. You were, when you were with the Yanks in the nineties, your first day, you were one of the first guys who actually lived in Manhattan. And most of those guys, I, I know they lived up this way. They lived up near Westchester out in Long Island, whatever. Most of them got shuttled to the games or you know, got rides, whatever, maybe they drove. How'd you get to the games? <laughs> the old silver limo, the four train.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, and I really had my agent at the time when I first got signed, or I got called up. My agent at the time was a New Yorker. And he said, Jimmy, when you come back from Baltimore, I want you to stay in the city in a hotel. And I want you to take the four train to the stadium. I want you to get off and walk down the steps and walk in the back entrance of Yankee Stadium. And I was like, you know, first of all, I came from Cincinnati, Ohio. I got a cowboy hat, cowboy boots. You want me to take a four train? Are you kidding me? You know, but I did it. And sure enough, I walked out. And as soon as you walk in the back entrance of the old stadium from the subway, you walk right into Monument Park. And that's what he wanted me to see. He wanted me to see the history because I wasn't a Yankee fan growing up. I was a Cincinnati Reds, big red machine. And, um, so he wanted me to take that in and just get the experience. And then once I did that, we went out, we went out two nights later in the city, had dinner and he said, honestly, cause I will tell you this, Jimmy, if you're, you don't know how long you're going to be a Yankee. And this is one of the greatest cities in the world. Stay here, find an apartment in the city and just, just be a New Yorker. And he goes enjoy that experience because we don't know how long it's gonna last. And you know what? For six years, I lived in New York City. I had my cowboy hat, my cowboy boots. I took the four train every single day. And you know, my mother and father from Cincinnati, Ohio, go. You know, aren't you afraid that you know something's gonna happen to you on those trains because those subways are dangerous? I said, Mom and Dad, I've got a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. They think I'm carrying something. They're not going to mess with me.
0: (laughs) Jimmy Larritz isn't afraid of anything. After reading your book, I'm convinced of that. That is awesome. And I think that has a lot to do with you falling in love with this city, the city that you call your, your, you know, your second, your your home away from home now. Um, Now there was, you took a a teammate off on the subway one time by necessity. Tell us about that. Yeah,
1: that w- that was one of probably my greatest stories that I tell people all the time because it was the first time and the only time in his life that Derek Jeter took a subway, right? So we were we, we had been out the night before, out all night. We overslept, we missed the bus. Well,
0: wait, you you just won the World Series, correct? Yeah, we just won the night. was okay, so the Series. big night, right.
1: Yep, we had been out celebrating for three or four days.
0: The, the parade was the next day
1: that night we were out really late we ended up oversleeping derek lived two blocks from me and we missed the bus and i said hey derek just come down you know come down by my apartment i've taken my son and my, my two year old son and my wife and you know we'll just we'll we'll figure out a way to get down and so he came down we came out there was com- there was a couple police officers on the corner and i said hey guys you know they of course recognized me and i said Hey, we missed the bus to get to the parade. Can you guys give us an escort? And he's like, Jimmy, all the streets are shut down. We can't even get down there, much less take you down there. And I looked at Derek and I said, gee, we're jumping on the train, brother. That's the only way we can get there. And so we go down to the subway and, you know, back then we didn't, there was no cell phones. People had cameras, but it wasn't like the cell phone craziness that you would normally get now. And we jumped on the train, and you know, I had my my son, my two year old, and my wife, and we take the train all the way down, and we. And, get and he
0: had never been on the subway, right? He had never. He was scared to. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he tells the story all the time, like, I, I I did not want to do this because you know I was scared, and so we took it all the way down, and we we made the parade, and uh, but yeah, funny one of the funniest stories because he did never take a, He never took a subway again after that.
0: Wow. That is so cool. You you really became a New Yorker, didn't you?
1: <laughs> I think that's one of the things the Yankee fans really appreciated, is what I was doing in the community, uh, being a part of the community. I did a lot of things with the PAL and all of the NYPD and the FDNY and you know just just a lot of stuff that really made me feel part of New York, and yet they felt like, hey, he really is a is a true new player that wants to be part of of our community too, and uh, just the relationships and the, the friendships that I have still to this day uh, is, is one of the friendliest cities out of the six cities that I played in.
0: It's really a misconception, isn't it? That, that New Yorkers are not friendly. It, it, they're, they're friendly in a very specific down-to-earth way, aren't they? <laughs> but they're, yeah. they're, they're direct, they're direct.
1: Well, and, 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 and they're loyal. They're loyal, if, if, if you treat them with respect, if you treat them important, you will get the same in return. Yeah. Because again, like I said, it's to me, it's one of the friendliest cities that I've ever been in.
0: Awesome. We have a, a lot of people really interested in, in this interview. Uh, we have There's a lot of baseball fans that listen. Um, Rob from Rockland County wants to know. Now, let me point out, Rob is a serious baseball fan. He got married at home plate at Cooperstown, New York. So this dude is serious about his baseball. He points out that you played for two legendary managers, Joe Torrey, a guy who's sort of solidified already, and another guy who's sort of in the process of really solidifying his legacy, Buck Showalter. Tell us some of the differences of playing for those two specific managers um, and what each brings to the table and what what each brought to your uh, career.
1: Yeah, you know, it's one of those things that people always say, you know, nobody has everything. Nobody has, you know, the baseball knowledge, also the personal knowledge or a way to deal with people. Uh, when Buck first came up with me, uh, we had been together for five years in the, or four years in the minor leagues.
0: Right. You were in the minors with him, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: And to this day, the I was the second player, second player who played the most games with Buck Showalter as my manager. Mm. The other one was Adam Jones, Baltimore. Um, and Buck and I, you know, he just really taught people what it was like to be a Yankee in the minor leagues. He stressed the discipline. He stressed how important it was to to put on that pinstripe uniform Mm -hmm. and then to play with him in the big leagues. Uh, one of the smartest managers, three steps ahead of every other manager that I've ever seen. I'd be sitting on the bench, and he'd be, hey, Jimmy, come here, watch this. I'm gonna do this, and they're gonna do this. And sure enough, he would do it, and they would play right into his hand. He was one of the smartest managers I ever played with. The only knock on Buck in the early days is that he didn't quite know how to deal with personalities. He wasn't a very personable manager. And Joe Torre, on the other hand, Baseball knowledge was good, but not great. You know, that's why with, with the National League, St. Louis, New York, that he didn't really pan out there. But man, there is no better person that knows how to handle egos, to handle personalities like myself included, right? like Roger Clemens, like these big names that would come into play that he really stressed, hey, you're no more important than my 25th guy on my roster. This is a team and you will play as a team. And he really knew how to deal with personalities. One of the greatest managers of people that I ever met. Wow. So there was a difference in the two managers.
0: Yeah. And
1: then I think what, what Joe Torrey did so well is he put Don Zimmer next to him, who was Mr. Baseball, who knew everything baseball. And that combination of him and Joe and Zimmer together was one of the greatest combinations of a coach and a bench coach,
0: right? That made up any, any, any gap in the, in the, in the ability, uh, pool. He, 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 he melded it with, he, he, he bridged it with, with Zimmer being there.
1: And I got to give Joe credit. Joe knew that after getting fired with you know the, the other jobs that he had, that this was his last shot. He went back to New York. He was a Yankee manager. He was a New Yorker. He was coming back home. And if he didn't make this one, okay you know, you fail. Well, instead of being afraid, which a lot of managers are to hire people that might take your job, he went out and got Zimmer. He went out and got Mel Stoudemire. He went out and got Willie Randolph, Chris Chambliss, all these other guys that eventually at some point managed another team. And he was not afraid to have those people. And that coaching staff that we had as a player, there was not one instance that I can remember that any of the guys on our team didn't listen to what our coaches were telling us because they had more experience than we ever could think about having uh, at, up until that point.
0: Yeah. Well, it's really, it's always interesting to me to to think of some of these sports coaches and managers in other realms. And it sounds like Tori would have been a great business manager, a a CEO or a COO or something. Um, And that's
1: that's why he's the second in charge in baseball right now.
0: Yeah. You know, because he does, he knows
1: how to work both sides. He knows how to bring people together to get people to drop their egos and their pride to say, Hey, what is for the betterment of all of us? Let's do that. And that's where Joe is. Joe is second to none.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, Another uh, uh, listener, Tony V from White Plains, wants to hone in on Showalter a bit more. You played for him with the Yanks when he was the younger manager, as you mentioned. And now, as things tend to happen, he's one of the oldest, and he's with the other squad uh, from town here. He's with the Mets. Um, from your viewpoint, how has Buck's situation changed in this career-long relationship with New York? Both, both as the game and, and, both, and the city as well. How has the situation changed for him? Yeah, you know what? I, I think the best thing that happened
1: to Buck is he went on TV for a couple of years <laughs> and he yeah. really developed a personality and he really became a little bit more lighthearted and open to more things. And really that's what it took, I think, for him. And I remember when, when he was managing in Baltimore, Jim Tomey was playing there and Jimmy and I were good friends. And I was talking to Jimmy one day because I was working for MLB.com and ESPN. And I was talking to Jimmy about, hey, what's it like playing for Buck? And he, he was the first one to say, you know what, Jimmy? I know early on he had a bad rap, but man, he is so good with all of our players, the younger ones and the older ones. And that wasn't what, the way he was early on. And to hear that from a guy like Jim Tomey, who's one of the most respected guys in the game, really made me understand, you know what? Buck has is, Buck is really turned the corner. And I remember when his name come up for the Mets, I remember talking to my good buddies that are, are Mets fans saying, dude, if you guys get Walter, it's going to change everything because he can take what's been missing at the Mets and he can help make it happen. And so far, so good. I mean, what he's done so far is, is pretty much, I think, uh, the future of what
0: the Mets are going to be like. It's really looking good, isn't it? Yeah. And, and by the way, just, just for the record, I was born a Met fan uh, by, by, by heritage, but I'm a Yankee fan as well. I'm i I'm a New York fan. I'm not one of these guys, but it's always happy. It's always good to see the the orange and blue, you know, I'm always a, I'm always a Yankee, but
1: I root for every New York team.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And and I root for the Mets until they play the
0: Yankees. Exactly. Exactly. And I got to go for the Mets, even (laughs) though you guys kicked their ass in in the series. Um, there's one more question from rich in Queens um, who says, you know, and I think a lot of fans agree the game four home run was just about one of the best things he's ever seen. Um, what were you looking for from Wollers on that pitch on at, at that point? Cause I know there had been many pitches. It was, you're taking a whole bunch of pitches at that point. What were you yeah. thinking was coming and what, what was it that he threw? Yeah, it, it was a six pitch at bat. Um, and the count was 2-2 two, two when I hit it. Um,
1: he had just thrown me on a 2-2 count, a slider, and I just barely followed it off. And as the catcher, the next thing I'm thinking, okay, fastball in. And this guy throws hundred miles an hour. If he throws the fastball in, I'm not going to be able to get to it. So I took about a half a step off the plate. And that way, if he threw in, I could take the pitch and know that would be ball three. I think he saw me move away. We, him and I have never talked about it to this day. Really I never heard him talk about it to anybody else. Wow. Uh, but I think by seeing me step off a little bit, that he thought he could throw another slider out there and get me. And sure enough, you know, I was looking fastball. And sure enough, he threw the slider, he hung it. I was able to stay back and hit it. and uh, you know, all I could think about rounding the bases was, hey, this just tied up the game. And if we don't win this game, it's going to be like my 95 walk-off home run against Seattle that was one of the greatest home runs I've ever hit. But we didn't win the series, so the f- home run became a footnote. Right. We didn't want right. this home run to become a footnote. We ended up winning. It changed the momentum of the World Series. We went on to win it, and it became one of the, most, the biggest home runs
0: to start that Yankee dynasty of the late 90s. Right, and for people that might not remember the game, refresh the memory of you guys were really down. I think you were, I think it was, you were down by how many points? Six. Yeah. We had just won game three the
1: night before. Right. Kenny Rogers took the mound and everybody questioned Joe Torrey for starting Kenny Rogers. And sure enough, it panned out that he probably shouldn't have. And we were down six, nothing. And then we started coming back in the sixth, sixth inning. And we, we got a couple runners on and all of a sudden, Mark Wohlers run, jumps up in their bullpen, and Wohlers at the time was their number one closer. He was like the Mariano Rivera of the Braves at the time. Mm-hmm. He had just got the last out of the 95 World Series for the Braves to win. And so he's warming up in the bullpen, and it's the top of the seventh inning, and o- O'Neill and Tino pinch hit. We, well, I'm sorry, first we score three runs, and then we got guys on first and second and we pinch hit O'Neal for Girardi and he strikes out and then they pinch hit Tino and then he struck out and Wohlers was warming up the whole time that they struck out against Mike Malaki and Wohlers was warming up. And I remember when uh, Tino struck out for the third out, I looked at Pat Kelly and I said, well, at least we didn't get swept because we had won game three. And I we figured it was over. Wohlers is coming in. He's gonna pitch two innings. And we're not gonna beat Smoltz, Kevin and Maddox the next three games. It's over with, and we were gonna be down three to one. And then sure enough, the magic happens and we end up winning that game four. And I remember Andy Pettit coming up to me and giving me a big hug and going, thank you. Because if we didn't win this game, I probably wouldn't have slept tonight because that would have been an elimination game tomorrow. Now I don't have to pitch an elimination game and I can relax a little bit more. And uh, and then of course he goes out and pitches probably the greatest game I've ever caught was that one, nothing game against the Braves in game five. Wow.
0: And you were his catcher, right? I was his personal catcher for
1: 95 and 96. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Jim, a lot of kids dream about being a good baseball player at any level, but it's almost beyond people's dreams to imagine wearing the Yankee pinstripes for a living. But for you, a guy who really had to work for everything that he achieved to to play in not one, but two world series where you hit pivotal home runs to help the Yankees win a world series. This is an indelible piece of, of lore of New York history. How did that feel when, when you hit that ball, how did it feel when you hit that home run off Waller's?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, it was one of those situations where just running around the bases, thinking about, okay, if we win, this is going to be huge. This is going to be the the moment that changed everything. And, uh, you know, but we still had to go out there and play, you know, and fortunately, Everything kind of happened after that with Andy Pettitte pitching such a great game, all of these relievers coming in the, the one nothing game and keeping the game one nothing. I mean, it was truly a one through 25 player that made us and helped us win that 1996 World Series. And the one thing great about that 96 World Series, which became the most important thing about that team and the home run is when the Yankees lost in 97, Mr. Steinbrenner wanted to fire Tory. He wanted to trade Mariano Rivera and he walked into Gene Michael's office after Mariano gave up the home run to Sandy Alomar in 97 and said, get rid of them. We're starting over, forget it. And Gene Michael said, George, did you forget about last year, you know, 96? And Joe Tory always tells me when he sees me, I loved you when you tell that story because I would not have had a job in 98 had that 96 team, not won. And then the the Yankees wouldn't have had that magical 98 season, which they beat me because I was on the Padres in 98. They beat me in the world series. They wouldn't have had that run. And
0: then that dynasty had we not won in 1996. You didn't just help the Yankees win a world series. You helped them kick off a dynasty, literally. Yeah. Listen, you had mentioned, um, going up and taking the initiative of introducing yourself to Steinbrenner as a, as a, as a minor leaguer, which was sort of unheard of. You, you got some spot, Jim. Um, I want to mention something that happened when you were playing for the Padres. Tony Gwynn was your team. He was the, he was alpha dog. He was the, the experienced the most experienced dude. And he was a phenomenal hall of fame player. Um, but he came in and gave you guys a dressing down uh, uh, at one point about work ethic and blah, 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 blah. And you, 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 you answered him, didn't you? Yeah. You know, it's one of
1: those things that, that was the quote you said earlier from Trevor Hoffman, that sometimes Jimmy says things that people don't want to hear, but are the truth. Um, and that was our situation. Tony, I got traded there in June. I, you know, I kept my mouth quiet. I just watched and I, I, you know, they were already one game in first place when I got there. So it wasn't my job to disrupt anything, just play and do your part. And I just remember watching Tony. He, he wasn't a big vocal leader. He wasn't, but he was, you know, he was Tony Gwynn. I mean, come on, he, he, one of the greatest players in history, but I'm just watching it. And he was just more of a teammate. And then the last game of the season, we had, we had a really bad September after we clinched. We weren't playing very well. it was the last game of the season in Arizona and music was playing. Mark Langston was playing his guitar with Tim Flannery. We were just all kind of having fun, you know for getting ready for the last game of the season. And Tony took this initiative to be this leader. All of a sudden came in, turn the TVs off, do this, do that. And, And I was like, whoa, where's this coming from? And everybody kind of bowed down to it. And I kind of said, wait a minute, you know, hey Tony, okay, if you want 25 guys on the bench supporting you, then I want you on the bench when you come out in the sixth inning and all these other guys go in that you stay out there and you support
0: them. And what were were the other teammates' reaction to when you stepped up and answered him like that? Kevin Brown and Andy Ashby going, dude, are you crazy? What are you doing?
1: I go, no, no, no. I'm just holding him accountable. So sure enough, we, I got I said, guys, listen, it's Tony's team. Let's go everybody on the, everybody on the bench. So we all went out to the bench. We, we, we were all sitting out there. Sure enough, Tony comes out in the sixth inning. I go to pinch hit in the top of the seventh. I come back from pitch hitting and Ashby and Kevin Brown are going, Hey dude. And I, I be lined it right up to the locker room. And I said, Tony, what are you doing, man? I go, you gave this big speech and I appreciate you wanting to be a leader, but you know what? I'm going to hold you accountable here get back out there and sure enough to his credit he came back out and he sat there and because Andy ashby and, and brownie followed me into the clubhouse to see what was going to happen and sure enough he came back out and then i remember the next day working out in houston because we had a day off we were working out in houston and i'm standing over in left field with ashby and brown and trevor and all these guys i'm like hey Larence. I know you got an option for next year, but it
0: was nice playing with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accountability. Yeah. I, I, did you ever recount that story for George Steinbrenner or your dad? That Well, my dad, of course, has heard the story. Yeah, it was just, yeah, uh,
1: yeah it, it's, uh, and again, it, it made the headlines. So it, it, it did get out there eventually. And yeah. of course, like you said, you read it in my book. And again, it was not a disrespectful thing. Tony Gwynn yeah, is I Mr. Understand. San Diego. Tony Gwynn is Mr. Baseball. And the way the media misconstrued it, that I, that I was saying that you know I didn't, I didn't respect Tony Gwynn was such a, an erroneous mistake by the media that the reason that it, it got played so bad was that because I was asked to compare Tony to Don Mattingly and they were completely opposites. And that's where things kind of got screwed up. And I I eventually met with Tony and apologized and said, Hey, don't believe everything the media wrote. You know, here's, here's what, how how I said it. And him and I patched it up before he passed away.
0: Much of the value of what I think somebody like you brings to the table, uh, Jim, particularly for younger people um, is that you, you know, you have this innate instinct and impulse to think for yourself and act for yourself and act righteously. And I think in in the in the world we're in today, that's increasingly valuable. And I I think that that was uh, very much a part of your legacy: hard work and and accountability. Um, I think those are those are excellent tenets to uh, to to leave behind, along with a couple of <laughs> championship winning home runs. Well, what me, what? Go ahead.
1: Yeah, for me, I mean, I think the biggest thing was as a player. If you read the book, you know my book, Catching Heat, like you read it, you can see the transition in my life of being uh, all about me. You know, my career. People sacrificing, like my, my mom and dad and my brothers and my sisters, sacrificing for me to be able to get to the big leagues. You can see that my career, you know, it was all about me. And then the transition, once I had kids and once I had a family and transitioning to more humility and not so ego driven, that, that was the biggest transition for me in my life as I progressed as a ball player, as I progressed as becoming a father. And then of course, after baseball, the humility that I, was, that I learned that I didn't always have you know, it'd be during my career that I had after my career is really uh, a welcome change in my life. one of the things that has changed uh, the way I approach people, the way I approach life, because you gotta remember as a professional athlete, your career is limited. So when you're in it, it's all about you, you know, and it's only gonna last so long. And yeah, uh, you know, once that was over with, you have the rest of your life to live and you know that's that's where you have to have the the humility that says, "Okay, I was a ball player, but again, I was just a ball player. Now I'm a father. Now I have to impact
0: people other ways. I, as I said, I really enjoyed researching you and reading your book. By the way, folks, the book is um, catching heat. This one's pretty worn because I read it. it went on it went on a couple of planes with me. Um, and I read it a couple of times, actually. And I got, and I felt like I, I'm like, there's a guy I really relate to uh, for a lot of different reasons. All baseball aside, at the end of the last page of the book, you said something that I say all the time to my kids and the kids who play for me when I coach. I've learned very little from winning, but I have learned a great deal from losing. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, those are words from the book, The Purpose Driven Life and my pastor, Rick Warren. Um, and it's, it's very true. I mean, you know, you hear athletes talk about getting knocked down seven times, getting up eight, you know, all these different things, but it's really true that the lessons that you, you learn, you don't learn when you're on top, you know, when you're on top, everything's great. You know, it's like, we always talk about a winning team is you, you don't know all the problems within the team until you start losing. Then those things come to light. It's the same thing with the lessons that I've learned. I chose a sport to play as a profession that I was gonna fail seven out of 10 times and really seven and a half in my career out of 10 times, right? That you would still be considered pretty good. There's not too many professions. If I, was a, if I was a doctor and I only saved 2.5 out of 10 patients, I wouldn't have a job very long. So you had to learn how to deal with failure. And I think that taught so many life lessons that you know, once the game was over with, once I was done playing that, you know what? I was ready for other challenges because I was not afraid to fail. And by failing and continue to fail, I learned more. And, and that's what made me become more successful.
0: Well, I think those are, as I said, I think those are incredible lessons. I know those are great lessons for your your sons. And I, I, I know, I think this is one of the many reasons People need to, people who didn't get to watch you play, who are too young, need to read up on you a little bit and study what you're all about. Um, tell us what you're doing now. Tell us uh, what's going on. I know you're working with the Yankees right now. You're in Manhattan. Tell tell us what's going on and events in your life and things that are going on.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I have I have a great wife who doesn't mind me traveling. Um, you know, her and I met each other here in New York uh, years back in 2009 when it was opening day and. At that time I was going through my, I was going through a trial for DUI manslaughter. And that was a three-year journey that I went on. That was probably one of the most difficult times of my life, but also now in my life, probably one of the experiences that I am so grateful for, except for the accident itself, but everything that has happened to me since then, um, it has been such a, you know, God given, uh, perspective. And I just think that uh, one of the things that I, I I met my current wife now, and I told her I read this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And that was what was helping me get through my trial and everything that I was going through, because I was being wrongly con- convicted uh, by the state of Florida. And it took three years to get to court. Long story short, after those three, after we finally got to court, the jury threw it out in 30 minutes. I was found uh, guilty of a DUI, which I was willing to take, but not guilty of the, the accident and was free to go. And at that time I had met my wife and I, you know, girlfriend at the time. And I said, let's go to California with the boys and let's see if this relationship through God and through everything else works. It did. And here we are in 2022, we've been married seven years. Um, and so I'm living in California. During the baseball season, the Yankees hired me for about 35 or 40 games to come up in the suites to sign autographs for the corporate sponsors and the seat holders, the suite holders. Um, I, I work for a title company in New York called Amtrust. So I do, t- I do title insurance for commercial and residential real estate in New York and in California. Um, and it just made sense to take an apartment here and to be here as much as I can to build my business. And then I also have two young, two stepdaughters that one of them is gonna pursue her PA hopefully at Marist College in Poughkeepsie. And then my other daughter is gonna be a senior next year and graduate, and she wants to start at FIT. So they're both gonna be in New York. So my wife said, you know what, let's take this apartment. Let's, you know, we're gonna be in New York most of the summers to be able to see our kids. And again, that's what, that's what I'm doing. I work for all different charities and foundations. Uh, I, I have a, in, in California, I'm on the board of a team. It's called the Teen Project. And it's uh, sexually trafficked girls and women that uh, that that you know that, that we bring in. We house them. We try to get them back on their feet. We put them through rehab if they need it. We find them jobs. We educate them. Uh, it's a pretty big charity in California. And then I do a lot of work here in New York with the ALS Association. But also, everybody in New York knows that if you want Jim Laird's at a golf outing, And you want to help raise more money for charity. I just did it yesterday at Hank's Yanks, Hank Steinbrenner's charity. Uh, You know, God rest his soul. But I I was the auctioneer at his charity yesterday to help raise more money, to get people involved, and to to be the auctioneer. Uh, And so we do things like that year-round. I'll probably play in 50 events this year and help raise money for charities and foundations that need financial
0: help. Wow. So you're not a guy who likes to sit still, are you, Jimmy?
1: No. You know what? It's one of those things my dad always told me. If you just keep moving, you'll never age.
0: Yeah. Good for you. And by the way, I, I apologize for not mentioning your stepdaughters. I knew you had sons. I, I wasn't aware you had stepdaughters. So you, you've got a big family, man. you got a big yeah. growing family. Yeah,
1: we, we were we were a Brady Bunch for about six years.
0: Yeah. That's great. That's great. And of course, the, the case I know all about, because I read the book, I we on another conversation, we could get into that, but that your makeup, your inner drive, your faith in God and yourself and your parents and your children got you through that uh, uh, incredibly difficult uh, 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 time. And I I commend you for coming out the way you did. Um, I, I give you a lot of credit. I think you're doing great things. I think you're a great example. Uh, 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 to kids, uh, uh, for, you know, looking at anybody, a public figure of any kind, I believe pro athletes are role models, whether they want to be or not. And I think you're handling it uh, wonderfully. And thank you, Jim Laritz. your inner drive and strength are exemplary and I believe made you a remarkable representative of this incredible place that we now call New York, your home away from home, the city that you fell in love with you. You also remind us that this public life, in this case, as a pro athlete, which can seem, as we said, so glamorous and glorious, has a real other side to it. And that in spite of the 11 years you spent in the big leagues, you struggled. You fought, as we said, for every at-bat, for every stat, every bit of respect you got, and you earned every bit of it. And I am so happy for the direction your life has taken and the wonderful examples that you've set as a person, as a father. As a husband, as a human being, well done. I commend you. And I thank you so much for taking this time to talk to me here. It was an absolute honor to get to spend this time and to hear your story. So um, please stay in touch. And I look forward to speaking with you again.
1: I appreciate that. Listen, behind every good man is a great woman. And I have one in my wife, Michelle, and she and I, our relationship is one of the reasons why we can have this kind of lifestyle
0: because of the love and respect that we have for each other. And, uh, It wouldn't be the same without her. That's beautiful. I I must say, I know what you mean. I have the same situation. So thank you so much, Jim. You take care and I look forward to seeing you soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Okay. Yankee legend, Jim Leyritz, everyone. What an impressive guy. Thank you so much for being here, Jim. The book is Catching Heat, The Jim Leyritz Story, and is available at all major booksellers as well as on his website, jimlayritz.com where you can also find out about everything that jim's doing with appearances events charities and his own podcast the catching heat podcast find out everything that's happening with this very hard-working yankee alum be sure to log into his site and follow along the many great things that he's doing i also want to thank my friend mike polski of polski sports and entertainment for facilitating this interview thank you michael Please follow Polsky Sports and Entertainment on Instagram. Thomas and Aaron, this is Island Voices, examining the incredible history of the island of Manhattan and talking to some of the people who have helped to make it incredible. Please be sure to subscribe on YouTube, as well as on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Climb aboard. History is cool. Island Voices is a production of Chance Kelly and Chance Kelly, Inc., and may not be reproduced or rebroadcast without written authorization. Thank you.